So there is no going back. There's only thinking about what is, where you are right now and where you want to be. And you move to where you want to be, and it's going to be different from where you are right now, and it's, and it's going to be different from where you used to be. And you just decide, what, where do you want to be, and how do you make the best of that? And any kind of instinct to go back to the way things were has never worked, will never work. Hey, everyone. Phil Libin is the former CEO of Evernote, and he's now the founder and CEO of a really interesting company called Mm-hmm. His company is reimagining how video can be used in hybrid and remote-first organizations. We'll talk about that here, but we'll also get into a much deeper discussion about things like what productivity even is, why Phil believes that it's inhumane to force people back into the office, and we even get a little bit into French philosophers. Phil's really fascinating, so I hope you'll enjoy the episode. I'm here with Phil Libin, who's the co-founder and CEO of mm -hmm. So welcome, Phil. Thanks. Nice to be here. I mentioned you're the CEO of mm -hmm, and actually you've been the CEO of a few things, uh, which we'll get into during the course of today. But um, nobody starts with being the C starts with being the CEO of anything other than, I guess, a lemonade stand. So, where did things start for you? Well, uh, I think I started my first company uh, in high school, uh, and we made. Um, We were selling uh, PCs. So we basically, we would, like, we would buy PC parts. So this would be in the late 80s, probably. We'd be buying PC parts from like, wow. Taiwan and assembling them and you know, reselling them to local businesses and out of kind of the back of our car. Uh, and I, I, I sold that company for, uh, for 500 bucks. That was my first, my first big exit. I got $500 out of it, which was uh, far more money than I'd ever had at any point in my life before that. So Yeah. So literally build, literally computer parts and assembling, assembling them and selling some businesses. Yeah. You know, back then it was, there was uh, PCs were just getting really like rolling as a mainstream thing for, for, for people and for companies. And so there was a whole market for PC clones, you know, IBM kind of made the, you know, the brand name PCs and there was all these yeah. other companies that uh, made uh, uh, clones that were in some much cheaper, but in some, in some ways better. And so, yeah, we would, uh, I think there were, there were already these like big distributors, like Ingram Micro, Tiger, mm -hmm. Direct, and a few others. I'm, trying to, I'm kind of blanking on the names. And yeah, we would, we would get these like giant paper catalogs that were, you know, several inches thick, uh -huh. different hard drives and controllers. I remember those. Yeah, just screw them together in our, in our, in our, in our apartments and drive them around and sell them to places. Wow. So, um, and that was uh, here in the United States, but you didn't start in the United States, am I right? No, I was born, so my, I was born in, uh, in what, It was then the Soviet Union uh, in uh, Leningrad, which is now St. Mm -hmm. Petersburg. My, my family, uh, my family was Ukrainian, um, but I was born when my mother was in was in what's now Russia, but back then it was all Soviet Union. And we came over in mm -hmm. 1979 as refugees. So we were one of the people, one of the families that uh, was lucky enough to be able to flee <laughs> the Soviet Union in the late 70s, and so we got to the to New York to the U.S. in 79. So there was obviously a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit in there if you were starting a company that young. What do you attribute that entre entrepreneurial spirit to? Uh, well, my first job was, um, was working at Carvel Ice Cream, which was this you know chain of ice cream stores mm -hmm. that was kind of on the East Coast. And uh, uh, I just wasn't very good at it. I couldn't. I kind of got fired from that job because uh, I didn't have the manual dexterity to make soft serve ice cream cones. People think it's easy, but... There's a, there's a whole technique because uh, you know you've got the you've 
got the ice cream dispenser and you've got to like rotate the cone around it at a certain angle. And if you don't, then too much ice cream goes inside the cone. And you know, it's all, it's all very complicated and I couldn't do it. Uh, and so I got fired from, from that, from that ice cream job. Um, and, you know, I'd had a couple of other jobs uh, uh, afterwards uh, doing programming and kind of other things like that. But it always seemed, I don't know, it always just seemed better to like not listen to what other people wanted me to do and just kind of figure out figure out what I wanted to do with myself or with some friends and, and just do it. And back then, computers were so new as a mainstream thing that I think if you, you know, if you were good around computers, like it didn't matter if you were, you know, 15 years old, you can still get a job and make money. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's my, my exact experience as well. So I completely resonate with that. Yeah, I kind of wonder what the equivalent of that is now. Like, when you and I were growing up, uh, yeah, it felt like you could get, you know, you can get good with quote-unquote computers, and that was like, that was a really in-demand skill, and you could you could make money doing it. I'm not sure what, like, 15-year-olds today, what, what is there an equivalent thing that they can make money on? I guess, you know. Well, it's a, good, it's, it's a good question, isn't it? Because, because the thing that, the thing that being good with computers meant was also that, you were good at something that the people hiring you weren't necessarily that good yeah. at. So there was almost like a mystery around it to right, them. Right. Um, and almost being young was an advantage, wasn't it? It was like, uh, it was like, Oh yeah, it's all these kids have got it figured out and we don't. Yeah. And, 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 and it was a mystery to them, but they also needed it. Like that was, that's the thing. It's like they, most people yeah. understood like why they needed computers and they just didn't know how to set them up or do anything. And so, yeah, it was a valuable, it was like a really interesting window where you could get good at something as a kid that was very commercially valuable to, you know, the adults. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I haven't thought about whether or not there's like a something equivalent in, in modern times. And kind of looking back on that period, then you obviously had it, you had a clear idea of what you were not that good at. Did you have a good understanding of what you were at that time? Good at? That's a good question. Probably not. Probably just, you know, quote unquote computers. Like I was the guy that you, know, you could mm-hmm. like, I would, fix your VCR from blinking 12 all the time and you just do basic things like that. And and then, yeah, when I got into PCs, I knew how to take them apart and put them together. And I remember that was in my high school. Yeah. Uh, we got some PCs for the high school library and they were networked together. Uh, not, not, there's no, not to the internet. They were just connected, you know, to, to each other um, mm-hmm. uh, using token ring, which was this like, you know, old networking thing before ethernet. And, and the thing around token, the thing about token ring cables was there were, there were two different connections depending on which end. So like the end that plugged into your computer was yeah. physically different than the end that plugged into the, the wiring closet, into the, you know, the, the router or the hub or whatever. And uh, whoever wired these computers up in a library got the cables backwards. And so they physically couldn't be plugged in. And it was going to be mm-hmm. like another like six months of like getting the wiring contractors to come back and do it. And I remember I just offered to like sneak in there one night and cut the ends of the cables and, you know, rewire them. And I did that very much unofficially, very much like under the table. But uh, from then on, like the librarian and various school administrators uh, owed me many favors. And so I, like, I, I learned from a pretty early age that if you were like handy around, you know, a computer and a soldering gun and a, you know, wire strippers, like you could, you could make your way through the world. Uh, important <laughs> lesson. So fast forward a bit from that and we get to the, I guess the first, proper company engine five. So tell me a little bit about that. And, and what did you, how did you come up with the idea? Um, what did it do? Uh, so basically it was me and, and, and a couple of friends of mine from college, um, from Boston university. 
And we were all working together at this company called ATG, uh, Art Technology Group in Boston. It was one of the early kind of internet companies. And um, uh, we just had this experience, which I think is pretty common, uh, where you know, you're know you working at kind of a big-ish company. It wasn't big by then, but it was the biggest company I'd ever worked for as of, as of that point. Uh, that, you know, you just like, you kind of look at yourself and you say, yeah, I know what I do. And I'm like, I'm pretty good at my job. I, I understand what I do. And then you look at like the guy sitting next to you and you're like, well, yeah, I kind of know what he does. And I kind of know what she does. And like, I get it. But then there's always like somebody that where you're like, what does that guy do? I'm like, I mean, he's kind of an asshole. Like, why is he here? Don't they know that he doesn't do anything? And, you know, we just had this experience where we kind of thought, well, what if we started our own company? And when someone showed up to interview and it was clear that they were, no talent and an asshole, we wouldn't hire them. We we're like, that's possible because it clearly had never been done in like the history of companies because companies were full of incompetent asses at the time. Uh, and so we said, all right, let's just start a company and um, do that. And so that was the idea. We really had no idea what we were going to do. We just, we was like, it was the, it was like the worst way to possibly make a startup. It was like, we didn't even know what we were going to do. We were doing it as a social experiment to like make our own company. So it was more like how you wanted to run that company than what that company We just wanted to make did. a place that was like fun to work at and wasn't frustrating. And so we would do yeah. that. And that was in 97. 97 was the height of the dot-com bubble. So we were in Boston. And so you could like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can go to any tree and say dot-com, dot-com and like shake it and a VC would fall out and give you money. And so it was like, if you knew programming, you could just work. So we just started, you know, started working. Mm-hmm. We didn't know about investors. We didn't know that there were people that gave you money. Uh, so we thought, you know, we thought you had to be like profitable. Uh, so we just started building, mm-hmm. you know, websites for companies and uh, immediately just, it just took off from there. So we built some of the first uh, uh, e-commerce sites, like some of the first shopping carts and, you know, places online where you could, you could buy things like we did work for eToys and Nokia. Uh, Nokia was a company that used to make cell phones. Uh, and uh, what, what, what became GameStop we actually worked on the on the current the current GameStop branding, like logo and stuff, was done by by our team uh, during the project we did uh-huh. with them. Because back then, GameStop was owned by Barnes and Nobles or something. I don't know. There was like some weird spin out. So yeah, so we, we were basically doing the work of the some of the initial like e commerce web things uh, back in the you know ninety seven, ninety eight, two thousand, that kind of stuff. And Phil, I know that um, hearing you talk about this, this was. This ended up becoming very hard work, even by normal, uh, normal startup standards. You're working extremely long hours. Yeah. Um, was it something about the business model that was causing that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, we, yeah, we were working 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Like I hadn't had a weekend, you know, off in in, in a couple of years. We got to about I think 15 or maybe 17 people total, um, mm. and. Uh, uh, I think it was because we were mostly doing consulting work. Uh, like it was, you know, consulting work. Like we were working for other companies solving their problems. And, um, you know, we had some reusable code, but for the most part, we were just billing, you know, by the hour. And so the more you work, the more money you made. So it was a very incentive was to, you know, cram as much work as you could. Uh, even when we had like, you know, fixed, fixed rate contracts, you still wanted to get them done relatively quickly. Um, and then the, what we realized is the problem with consulting. It was... Uh, it's a good way to like get paid, but it's not a, it's not a good way to build in mm-hmm. value because you're not, you know, you're not actually creating anything that's yeah. going to accumulate a value. When you, you know, when you stop poking at the keyboard, they stop paying you. So even if you can get, make yeah. a lot of money while you're typing away, you can still only type away for so many hours a year. 
Um, so yeah, I think I think it was probably that. I think the lesson we learned from that was like our our experiment to only to only hire people that we wanted to work with was pretty successful. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, we also realized that I think being being consultants, basically, you know, being paid for our for our our labor uh, was not a, you know n- not a good way to, to actually build any value. Even though you know we got lucky, really lucky, and we got paid pretty well. Yeah, it's interesting. I had much of that experience myself. My first um, company was a consulting company as well. And it's funny, (laughs) some of these things seem really, really obvious in retrospect, but not necessarily immediately obvious when you're, when you're inside them. And, and what I realized fairly soon was that the, the, to your point, the incentives are there so that you're effectively, the harder you work, the more money you make. The longer hours you work, the more money you make. And it actually becomes very, very difficult, um, possibly, I guess, because of fear that at some point you might not be, <laughs> you might not be working. Um, you almost tend to push yourself into a potentially unsustainable situation because at some point down the line, it, that the money might not be there. And the only way in which you can generate more money is by working harder. And it's funny, I saw that in my company, but I've seen it with consulting just in general. It tends to be an existence that requires a huge amount of self-discipline to not work extraordinarily long hours. Um, and you see that inside a, inside of a lot of organizations and culturally it can be very, very difficult to work around that. We even see that with some of the organizations that we've worked in whereby that's the basis of everything is the more hours you, the more hours you clock, the more money you make, so therefore you clock a lot of hours. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, the world tends to revert to what its incentives are. So regardless of like what you think your values yeah. are, what you're really going to wind up doing is following whatever incentives or structures are, 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 you know, you've put into place. And so it's kind of unsustainable to have a set of values that are at odds with the incentive structure that you're living under or working under. And so we try to line those up as much as possible. Yeah. So skipping forward, then we go, we go from that, you've kind of figured out that, that in order to be able to provide something, a lasting value, you need, you need product. And I know you've done, uh, you, you started another company after that, which, which really helped you understand that, but let's skip forward a little bit to Evernote, um, which is probably, I guess, the thing that you're, that you're most known for. For those that don't know that have never, uh, have never used it, um, how would you describe let's say what Evernote was initially and what Evernote has become well what we set out to do is to build a we called it from the earliest days we called it a cognitive prosthesis so it was a, it was a second brain uh, we wanted something to you know make you smarter uh, what we built was a note-taking app but it was you know it was the world's best note-taking app mm-hmm. uh, and it turns out that, that like that goes a long way like a really a really nice way to capture any kind of information that you're seeing on any device. I mean, know that it's still going to be available to you at any time. Uh, that's what it was. And, and, you know, in modern days, I think like a, a lot of those concepts are fairly, they're fairly straightforward. But back when we were starting this, you know, we, we, uh, we kind of reformed the company in 2007. There was, there was a, um, I, I had a, I had just exited uh, with my team for my second company from Core Street uh, and then uh, met this other guy, Stepan Pachiko, who was this brilliant um, entrepreneur uh, and he he had a team and we were in boston he had a team in california and we both had like a very similar idea about 
extending a brain, giving you a second brain. And so we decided to merge those two companies. And we did that in 07 and, and it recreated the entity that's called Evernote. And uh, the idea was to, yeah, just make, make everyone smarter. Um, and uh, it was basically what you would, I think now just say a flexible note-taking system. But back then the new things were, you know, background synchronization. So you can, you can capture a note on your phone and it would be available on your Mac and vice versa. And you didn't have to think, think about it. You don't have to set up any FTP servers. You don't have to push any buttons. You can like take a picture uh, of a business card and then search for it by text, you know, later. So we did, we did OCR of any, of everything, uh, worked on, you know, multiple devices. We had a, 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 a browser extension that you can push a button and capture any any web page or section of a web page. So it was the kind of stuff that I think we I think we 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 popularized a lot of technologies that then went on to become thankfully pretty common of in the productivity landscape now. Uh, and it was it was great. Our, our our vision was to just kind of make productivity something that was relevant again. I think when we were getting started, mm-hmm. productivity still meant Microsoft Office, it still meant you know a database, a word processor. And a spreadsheet. We were like, I don't even know what a database is anymore. Uh, but that that idea of productivity hadn't changed in 20 years, and so I think we we, we changed it. Uh, and uh, it's really been good to see how the company's developed and uh, all of the new kind of productivity category that I think uh, we helped uh, spur on. The Way Too Busy podcast is brought to you by Billion Minds. Working out of the office brings employees all kinds of freedoms but it can be really difficult to do well and stay engaged every day. Billion Minds has spent years studying the day-to-day habits of people who do great work in unstructured, ambiguous environments, and they've used it to develop a revolutionary platform that embeds key work-from-anywhere skills into employees in just 10 minutes a day. If you want to help your employees become remote work masters while generating better business results for your organization, visit BillionMinds.com today or contact us at info at BillionMinds.com. Billion Minds, helping everyone do great work from anywhere. This definition of what a productivity application even is, right? So you described Evernote as a productivity application. I would certainly think of it, you know, as in, you know, when you see it, you know one, right? And, and that is a productivity application. Um, but what do you think constitutes a productivity application? And then more specifically, what do you think makes a good productivity application? I think, I think those are really good questions. And I think, I think right now it's actually worth taking an even more basic question, which is what is productivity? Like, what do you, what do you, mm-hmm. what, is, what does it mean to be productive? What, what, you know, and what should it mean? Cause I think like the whole concept of productivity for you know, for knowledge workers, for creative people, I think was probably we're probably used to defining it in a very kind of industrial age sense. You know, we're still looking at sort of outputs per unit of time or outputs per you know person mm-hmm. or something like that. It's a very like factory model of productivity, um, and it's weird. It's a weird. It's a weird notion. So I think like I think if I was starting a productivity app now, and I think mm-hmm, I think of it as, as a productivity app of, of, of sorts, mm-hmm. uh, I would go about it very differently than, 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 than an Evernote because I, because I think the whole concept of what it means to lead a productive life is a little bit different than, than, than it used to be. And I think we're all, we're all still trying to, to figure that out. But at its simplest form, I think being productive means uh, accomplishing what you want to accomplish. So 
there's something you mentioned just before that, which I think is really interesting, which is that some things changed in terms of what it means to be productive now than what it meant to be productive, let's say, two decades ago. Why do you think that is? Well, I think I think I think some stuff has just become table stakes, right? So, like back then, right. uh, we were saying again, this, if you take this definition of productivity, is like we're going to let you accomplish what you want to accomplish with you know as little mm-hmm. uh, 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 as few errors as possible and as little cost as possible. Uh, and so, if you looked at well, what were the things that were preventing you from accomplishing what you want to accomplish? It's always things like well, you forget something, or you need some information to do it, but you don't have access to that information. Um, like I remember, um, you know, going back to that high school library where I you know, rewired the, the library computers, mm-hmm. uh, those were, you know, those had CD-ROMs and it had like basically all the card catalogs. So it had like lots of like, um, you know, fully searchable card catalog of, you know, virtually every book, uh, that you could search on the computers. And that was very much a big productivity boost because, you know, you couldn't, there wasn't really a Google you know, Google, Google wouldn't be invented for many years, yeah. you know, since then. So if you wanted to, like, find something, like, find, a, you know, some information, your best bet was to, like, read a book about it or a magazine article. But how would you even find the book or the magazine article? Well, you know, before this generation of computers that I, you know, that I, that I, that I helped my school put in, it was, like, you know, microfiche, which is, like, these, like, little photographic films. Mm-hmm. So you would go to a microfiche reader and you would say, well, I think maybe this thing was in the, a Scientific American journal, and you would just like look through like all of the back issues of Scientific American, like optically trying to find something, and then maybe you would be able to get it. And then from there, we had a you know better searching, but even that was very specialized on you know these CD-ROM databases, and then you could find the reference, but you still couldn't get the magazine. So so you would find the reference, you'd be like, ah, okay, this was in the Scientific American from you know 1974. And then you would, you know, order that copy from the librarian and they would go and get it for you from some other library and it would take a few weeks to show up. And this is all like, this is not ancient days, right? This was my lifetime, right? This was, um, and now, and and so back then, like an efficient, you know, being able to search a database of like magazines was like seen as like a really major advance. Whereas like right now, no one would do any of that stuff because you just, you know, you just Google it and, and it's there. So a lot of it is just like things become table stakes. And same thing with Evernote, right? With Evernote mm-hmm. in 2007, there was a big problem that like, yeah, I had the information, but I have it on this computer, but I'm not near my computer right now. I'm near a different mm-hmm. computer or I'm near my phone. How do I use it? You couldn't do that before. I mean, you could, but you'd have to set up very complex structures. You'd have to like set up centralized servers and upload stuff somewhere and like do a lot of stuff. Whereas like, and so Evernote, you know, solving that seamlessly where take a picture of something on my phone, not think about it again for years and then search by a few keywords that were in the photo and find it years later on a totally different device. Like that's not that big a deal anymore, but it, but it was back then. So part of it is, you know, the technology advances and you get, you get table stakes phenomena. Uh, but part of it is the world changes. Um, you know, we we live through these, uh, uh, there's a French philosopher named uh, uh, Michel Foucault uh, who talks about this as a, historical continuity and historical discontinuity. Uh, the idea is that mm-hmm. historical continuity means that there's like important things that the world thinks about, that society thinks about that generally doesn't change over the course of decades or even hundreds of years. So like hundreds of years go by and we don't really change the way we think about an important thing, but then all of a sudden a, a discontinuity happens and and how, how the world, how society thinks about some important things changes. And, and you know, and, and we're living through, uh, more historical discontinuities right now than I think have ever happened in my lifetime because of because of COVID because of all, because of you know distributed work because of all this other stuff yeah. so a lot of it is just like 
the world changes its opinion on how we're supposed to do stuff. Um, and, you know, you take the combination of those, you take, you know, changing attitudes about important issues, plus what technology enables to mix table stakes. And it means that what you would actually want to build as a product for productivity is radically different now than it would have been, you know, back in 2007 when I got started. In it. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really, really interesting. I mean, I think if I take some of what you said there, you're, what you're kind of saying is that if, if you, in the past, if you wanted to uh, accomplish something meaningful and potentially complex, then the, the process of doing it was itself extremely complicated, right? You had to have a, you either had to get a whole bunch of other people with a bunch of skills that you didn't have or develop a whole bunch of skills yourself in order to be able to do, do these things. And those things themselves were incredibly time consuming. And the vast majority of those things, the sort of process things have been optimized over time yeah. to the point whereby it's a Google search engine away, or it's a, or the communication piece of it is really, really simple. And so that's all and to a certain extent done. And so now what it means to be productive in that new world where that's all done is a totally different potentially set of skills. It's interesting because for us, we think about that as being that same engine that is, is now available to us that allows us to be able to find anything at any time incredibly efficiently. It's so efficient that it can be used for any purpose. And so therefore, the challenge now is to sort of maintain attention in that, right? The challenge now is to be able to focus those um, that immense power that you have for something that is itself productive. The challenge now for us is to is to make the human is to help the human being to be productive amongst amongst this enormous power that they have that can be used for anything, including stuff that isn't remotely productive. Yeah, uh, I think that's right. I think like there's there are new problems that are created uh, or that are at least made worse. Uh, for example, if, mm -hmm. you know, if if in the 70s or the 80s, I wanted to, you know, do some research about, uh, I don't know, a historical event. And I wanted to like read about that historical event. Like, well, my challenge was like finding the information, like finding the articles, the history mm -hmm. books, and then accessing them because I physically could just Google it. Um, I didn't have the challenge of like, but now it's very easy to find all that stuff. But now the problem is like, I don't even know what, I don't know what's true because there's so many more lies out there. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, but like we have we have issues now that that just didn't like that were dwarfed by 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 structural changes by structural problems before that now that we've sort of made the structural problems easier as you're saying we have we have other things that come to the surface so like is it you know is it easier or harder to be to be smart about to have an accurate understanding of history right now than it was twenty or thirty years ago and well overall I think probably easier uh, if you're serious about it um, but. Mm -hmm. If you're not particularly serious about it, or if this is not like really your job, then you're actually probably more likely to be to be more confused and more wrong. Because maybe 20 years ago you just wouldn't have known anything. Now you actually know something that's just false, or you think you know something that's false. Yeah, and that's a big problem. Uh, it's a big problem for the world. Uh, so yeah, all of this stuff changes. I, I, I really think that like we have a, we have this we have a crisis right now of what I think of as as our epistemic infrastructure. Um, the infrastructure mm -hmm. of how we think we know things, right? Like, how do we, how, like, mm -hmm. what makes us think that we know something? How do we, can we, we don't have to agree 
you know, we don't have to agree on opinions uh, if we can agree on the facts. Okay, we don't have to agree on the facts if we can agree on how we go about finding out the facts. But now we don't agree on opinions, mm-hmm. we don't agree on the facts, and we don't even agree on how we, how we would go about establishing the facts. And so, like, well, then how can we have any basis for any kind of communication when, when we have this, like, this, this infrastructure that we use to know things is no longer reliable, at least the, the, last, the last version of it. And the last version of it was basically Google or, like, Wikipedia. You know, you're like, we sort of yeah. agree that, like, you know, if we disagree on something, okay, let's Google it. And then, you know, we can kind of come to a consensus yeah. because Google says so. But that, that is, I think that's rapidly, that, that, that era is rapidly ending. And now we need, we need a way that's not just Google to, to know things. Uh, and, and so these are like, I think, the deeper issues of productivity that are, that are, that are very interesting, that are much more interesting to me than, uh, you know, how you synchronize information or how you read, how you read text out of images, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's super interesting, Phil, because if you think about it, we, we've we always had, I suppose, the same ways in which we knew things, which is we would look stuff up and we would uh, learn from people that we trust. Mm-hmm. We still so, do that, except now we get very yeah, Et cetera. So we're still doing yeah. that. Yeah. It's just, yeah, we're still doing that, but it's almost all weaponized, isn't it, in a sense, right? So like the network of people that you could reach out to that you trust is 20 times or 30 times what it was. And maybe you shouldn't trust all of them. (laughs) And the information that you're getting, you can get from anywhere and the quality of it and accuracy of it is less, is potentially less consistent than it used to be. So I suppose it's like the same techniques that we've always had and what we're wired to do as individuals. But now the things we're checking are themselves potentially less reliable than they used yep. to be. It's interesting. There's a lot more mundane stuff huh. too that are changes. So for example, just for me personally, I was for, for many years, for a couple of decades probably, um, the most important thing in my in my life was the calendar. So the calendar app was the app. That was mm-hmm. my single source of truth. That's that's what I would live by. So I'd wake up in the morning, check my calendar, it tells me what I'm doing that day, and then I do it. And so my calendar was like, that was the most important thing for me, was the calendar. Um, because the calendar was basically a record of my, of my external meetings, right? My meetings, but by external, I just mean like outside of my own head. <laughs> I don't even mean inside the company, like just like yeah. my interactions with other people. But my interactions with other people back when I had to commute was pretty much the most important. Like you could, if you looked at that, you kind of knew what I was working on and what I was doing. And if I needed to like refresh mm-hmm. my memory about something, I would just check my calendar and I would see like, oh yeah, who did I meet with that day? And then that would, that would be good enough. And, 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 and the most important thing was getting things into my calendar. So if I wanted to talk to someone about something, to work mm-hmm. on something, I'd have to find the time to schedule it in because I was doing, you know, like 13, 13 or so average meetings a day. Uh, now, like in the past year and a half, my calendar has become much less important because I don't do very mm-hmm. many, synch- I don't do a whole lot of synchronous interaction anymore. You know, I probably have four and a half average meetings a day. Like this, this is one of them. This is like of the things, well, today is actually a mm-hmm. busy day for me, but in general, I do, you know, four or five like synchronous conversations or meetings with people. And the vast majority of the time they're, they're asynchronous. I'm doing work, but you can no longer tell what I'm working on just based on who I'm meeting with, who I'm talking to at any given time. So the, the calendar has sort of fallen from its like primacy. Uh, and now there's something else that's like the most important thing uh, in my life for, 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 for uh, figuring out what I'm actually working on. Um, 
and 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 that's a big change. So I think if I was again, if I was doing productivity right now, I'd really want to th- rethink what calendars are. What because like calendars no. don't mean what they used to mean, and meetings don't mean what they used to mean, or they shouldn't. This is like a major change. Is people just shouldn't be doing as many meetings. When I was doing thirteen meetings a day on average, it sounds like I was more productive than now when I'm doing four and a half meetings a day on average. That drop from from 13 meetings a day to four and a half meetings a day has made me far more productive. Like I'm accomplishing more than I ever have. It's not like I'm, you know, in my quasi retirement. Uh, it just turns out that meetings are a terrible, 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 terrible way to like conduct yourself. Um, so these are all, again, these are all like big changes that, that are part of this historical discontinuity that we're living through that I think very much affect the whole concept of what do you, what does a productive life look like? So that's a great segue into mm-hmm, which is your your current company. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what mm-hmm does and uh, and what you hope it will be doing over the next few years? Uh, mm-hmm is an app that makes you great at at video. Uh, I mean, video communication is the key to uh, being able to live and work the way that you the way that you want. Uh, video communication, particularly around teams, uh, so you can replace as many meetings as possible with with recorded stuff, but when you are meeting live, either on either on video or in person, you make those count. So I think that like the what does is it basically gives you it gives you and it gives the team communication superpowers. Uh, lets you just waste less time uh, thinking that you're communicating when really you're not. You're just getting in the way of communication. Uh, and the specific way it does that is by making it easy to go from synchronous video to asynchronous video and, and and kind of smoothly go back and forth between them. So do recorded stuff when that makes the most sense, do live stuff when that makes the most sense. Have all of that be hopefully much better than than what you get currently with the, the first generation of video tools. Yeah, and I can vouch for that. We've been using it increasingly ourselves now. And it, it's it's really interesting, Phil. It's one of those those things that once you start using it, you start to realize how unique it is, <laughs> but it almost takes like that first, um, first few interactions with it to be able to really understand, um, the ways in which we need to optimize and enable different forms of work. Cause you were just describing, right. This, this, um, relationship between synchronous and asynchronous work is, is fundamentally changing. Um, and particularly as we move into distributed teams with, um, more workers outside of the office, the ability to be able to optimize our communication across all channels becomes, becomes hugely important. Now, I know that, um, remote work is not a term that you, that you particularly like. Um, so give it up on that. explain to me. I'm off my high horse on that. Sorry. I've given up on that. I was on a, I was on a moral high horse. Yeah, <laughs> it's not remote; it's distributed. But I decided screw it. I'm just going to say well, remote and hybrid. Just what okay. It says. <laughs> you're welcome. Why were you on your high horse? If you don't mind my asking, I come on. I'm you know I get I go through unreasonable periods uh, where you know I decide that you know it's better to call it something else uh, because you know the problem with remote right is that it connotes that it's, you're remote from something. And so somebody is more central. Someone has mm-hmm. an advantage, and if you're remote, you have a disadvantage. And so I was I prefer distributed because you know, like the internet is a distributed system. It's not a remote system. It's not a system of remote computers. It's distributed. It's not remote from anything. Everyone is distributed, and it's distributed by design. Not like the internet yeah. is not remote by accident. It's like it's distributed by design. And so it was the same kind of thing. Like we're, we're making a company that's distributed, which means that 
We don't have remote employees. We have distributor employees. We have people all over the place, and they're distributed by design because it's better that way because it's more productive that way. There are all sorts of like elegant philosophical reasons for choosing one word versus the other, but you know, at the end of the day, who cares? It's you know, people want to say remote and hybrid, and yeah. that those are terms that society understands. Why why confuse things by by insisting on different terminology? The Way Too Busy podcast is brought to you by Billion Minds. Are you one of over a billion people who works out of the office at least one day every week? If so, you probably want the freedom that working from anywhere affords, but you also want the same opportunities your in-office colleagues get. It turns out that to do really great work out of the office that your colleagues and leaders will truly value, you need a specific set of skills. Billion Minds can help you develop those in just 10 minutes a day using our revolutionary platform that combines experiential learning with behavioral science. Way Too Busy listeners can get started right now for free in just three minutes. Just visit www.billionminds.com slash way too busy to start your journey. Billion Minds, helping everyone do great work from anywhere. You just, you just said something which is really important, I think of a lot of interest to, to our listeners. You said, we're designing our company to be distributed and we're doing it because it's better that way. So not every CEO believes that. And in fact, a few very high profile CEOs don't believe mm-hmm. that. Not every commentator believes that. We had an episode a while back talking about Malcolm Gladwell's opinion on that. Um, I'm curious as to what's the why behind designing our company as, uh, as distributed because it's better that way. What's the, what's the why behind that? Well, let me say, it's not necessarily better for, most, for all companies. Um, it's just better for our mm-hmm. company and most others. Uh, but it's hypothetically possible. Some mm-hmm. companies are better off being, being centralized. Um, uh, look, I think, I think people spend too much time. People are blinded. Whenever there's a big change, um, most people think about the problems that that change creates and uh, focus on the problems. Mm-hmm. And then they either focus on solving the problems or they focus on whining about the problems, but they're focusing on the problems. It's very understandable, very human reaction. Not very interesting. Um, much more interesting to focus on the, on the, on the advantages and the superpowers and the opportunities and focus on maximizing those and doubling down on those and then putting the problems into perspective. Like once you know what the superpowers are, what the advantages are, then you can decide whether the problems are worth living with or worth solving or worth, or, or no, you just give up. And so, one way to put it is like, what are the advantages of be having a distributed company? Well, let's start with 0% of my employees waste any time sitting in traffic. Like none. Mm-hmm. At Evernote, you know, it was an average commute was about two, an hour and a half each way. Uh, it was very common. So three hours a day. Um, I mean, is that, is that not enough to say that? hundred percent of my, I'm not asking anyone to spend, to waste three hours every single day stuck in traffic. And the thing mm-hmm. that's like super stressful, super unhealthy, super bad for the world. takes time away from you, your, your family and your friends and music and other pursuits. Three hours a day stuck in traffic. Why? That is so inhumane. I'm never again in my life going to ask mm-hmm. someone to do that. You know, three hours a day, every day, five days a week for, you know, the prime of your life, you're going to waste and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like, of course not. So I actually, I, don't, I mean, there's, there's 20 other, you know, giant superpowers. It's not even the biggest, but, but it's a big enough one. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, how about, no, I'm not going to sit in traffic for three hours every day and you can't make me as a start. 
mm-hmm. you know, another one is, uh, look, if you talk to CEOs, it's kind of a secret. There's a secret thing that, that, that they teach us in CEO school, which is uh, you get asked, <laughs> what's the hardest thing about running your company? There's only one answer you're allowed to give as a CEO. The only one answer that any CEO has ever given about what's the hardest thing you're, 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 you're required to say it's the people. It's getting, it's hiring and maintaining the best people. It's always the hardest thing. That's the only reason, the only reason you're ever allowed to give for what's the hardest thing. And it's, you know, it's mostly true. Um, and so here we, here we've spent the past 50 years as CEOs whining about how difficult it is to get the best people. We've just been given the greatest gift in the world for that, which is I can hire from people everywhere in the world. A hundred percent of my job listings say global. Mm-hmm. I hire people from anywhere in the world for a hundred percent of the jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, with some exceptions, you know, for, you know, in not currently, you know, in North Korea or Russia or something like that. But for the most part, everyone in the world yeah. pay people the same. Um, my top of the funnel for talent is just 10,000 times bigger than it was before. I'm never going to write a job description again that says I'm looking for a database engineer in San Francisco. Never going to happen. I'm going to say I'm looking for a database engineer. So I can hire from the very best people anywhere in the world. And I'm going to give that up. No, I'm never going to pry that out of my cold dead hands. I'm never giving that up. Any company that like that, that gives mm-hmm. up that benefit is putting themselves at such a massive, massive disadvantage. Um, I like the fact that my employees can have a decent quality of life, that they don't have to like live in you know places that are too small for them and their families, and 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 you know and in dangerous neighborhoods and commute. And you know, I like the fact that. Anyone who works at, at, at my company can live in the house that I'm currently living in, literally, because like mm-hmm. they live in Bentonville, Arkansas. It's just not that expensive. Make this, we, we pay people the same mm-hmm. regardless of where they live. Why, why shouldn't we? We pay them based on their contribution, not based on their location. So I like the fact that people can yeah. like have a decent quality of life. I think that makes them more productive. I think if you improve the quality of life of, of creative people, of knowledge workers, it improves their quality of work. And that becomes a virtuous cycle because then if you improve their quality of work, then you get more success, which translates to more money, which you could then put into improving the quality of life even more. So you get this like beautiful virtuous cycle, improving quality of life, improves quality of work, improving quality of life, improves quality of work, improving quality of life, and so on. Um, why would I give that up? Yeah. So I think you like you focus on the superpowers for a creative team, for mm-hmm. a team of people who work on laptops, we're not making rockets, we're not doing, you know, we're not doing brain surgery. We're not cooking meals. Um, the advantages are astronomical. They're blindingly obvious. It takes a real, a real effort to like close your eyes to these benefits. So when you kind of internalize that and you kind of say, well, these are the benefits. I'm never giving them up. Then you say, okay, well, what are the problems? And there are problems. And then you figure out, mm-hmm. okay, well, how do we mitigate these problems? How do we solve them? Because they're worth solving because the benefits are so shockingly massive. And, and so then, you know, we incrementally solve the problems as they come up and we get better and better at it. We've gotten reasonably good already. And we spend time making sure we get as much of the benefits as possible because the benefits are staggering. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's just such an intuitively obvious thing. And of course, it's not for everyone, uh, only for people who want to have a decent life. <laughs> You know, Phil, what I love about that is it just speaks to the extraordinary power of of where you start a thought from. <laughs> so yeah, that's a really good way what I mean by that is that, yeah, it, it's like, imagine for a while, for a while we, we have done this actually with some of the companies that we work with and say, okay, let's take, let's imagine that, for example, it's not possible to do anything other than remote work. 
you live in a world where whereby maybe it's another pandemic or whatever it happens to be, but you live in a world where nobody is going to come into an office because an office doesn't exist. What do you do then? Right. And how do you turn that into a super successful business? And if you start from that perspective and then you start to figure out all the things you need to do in order to turn that into a super, uh, super successful business, very soon that business starts looking better than the business that you're trying to run right now. And it all comes from where that thought starts from. And, and we see so many people right now who are thinking about it in terms of a normal that was versus the normal that is, and now struggling to get as much of that normal that was back. Um, and versus thinking about the company of the future that is built around the idea of a distributed workforce. So I, I love, I love how you it's put the, it. You know, it's, it's the back that's that's where all the problems start right it's always it's always people mm-hmm. wanting to go back to the way something was and you never do that in any area of life or or, or, or history or culture or business you never go back there is no going back time only goes one way it only goes forward so there is no going back there's only thinking about what is, where you are right now and where you want to be and you move to where you want to be and it's going to be different from where you are right now and it's, and it's going to be different from where you used to be and you just decide what, where do you want to be and how do you make the best of that? And any kind of instinct to go back to the way things were has never worked, will never work. Uh, and, and, and honestly, like, you don't really fully remember the way things were. <laughs> you like, think you do, but you don't. Like, mm-hmm. you're, 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 you know, you're looking at it through a pretty inaccurate filter. You know, companies that say, well, how do I keep my corporate culture? You don't because your corporate culture sucks. And it always kind of did. <laughs> And, and it's not yeah. like we, all of your employees were like amazingly happy and fulfilled and had perfect life work balances, you know, when they were back at the office, there were all sorts of problems. And some of those problems got a lot better and some of those problems got worse. But the question is not, how do you go back? The question is, how do you go forward from where you are right now? And again, for some companies, yeah, like if you're, if you're making yeah. hardware, you're assembling things like, sure, yeah, you got to be in a centralized place. I'm not saying that it's like no, no company will ever be in a centralized place. I'm just saying like, treat your workers as with respect as adults and let them figure out where they need to be to get their job done. And if the job requires, you know, screwing rocket ship parts together, then yeah, you go where the rockets are. And, you know, if it requires doing brain surgery, go where the brains are. Um, and if it requires cooking, you know, great meals, go where the, go where the restaurant kitchen is. Uh, and, and all of those people, all of those jobs, right. That are dependent on being in a physical location, all of those people will also benefit tremendously from this world because they're not constantly fighting for traffic and, and high rent and everything else with all the people who don't need to be there physically or just there because they're forced to. So it's a better life for, for, for the geographically constrained jobs and for the geographically unconstrained jobs. Uh, because at the end of the day, all those are just people. And, and it also turns out that there's no such thing as life-work balance. There's only, there's only life. There's only, like, there's, only, there's only life. And work is, work is part of it. So this idea that we like separate yeah. life and work so completely and you've got like office hours and there's like a physical location that you go to work and it's different from where you live and that's okay. And the commute and the, all the inefficiencies for that, like that's what causes the problems. Like we, we should have never, we should have never coined life work balance as an expression. It should have always been just about life and the part of it that work plays in. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because the billion minds we talk about that quite a bit, and explicitly the that work life balance image of of you know like work on one side and life yeah. on the other side, 
And we actually, I mean, we, we researched it a bit. It's interesting. I mean, it, what it comes from is a, is a very much in the office culture. And the theory was that if those two things were out of balance, then you fixed it by spending an hour less in the office or an hour and a half less in the office. You'd come home from the office earlier and that would redress the balance in some way, shape or form. But in reality, of course, what we're really looking at is a set of skills that people need in order to be able to integrate work effectively with the rest of their lives. And that set of skills used to be pretty simple, which it was leave the office earlier because everything you did was in the office. And if you were away from it, you, you really couldn't work in many cases, right? It's certainly if you go back to, you know, sort of before cell phones and, you know, and things like that, once you were gone, you were gone. And so the, but now the set of skills that you need in order to be able to integrate work effectively in the, in the rest of your life, in a world that itself is ever changing in a world where work can interrupt you at any moment and pull you back in at any moment, that set of skills has become much more difficult to build. And so it really is intriguing that you talk about that because it always, to your point, it always has been life and the role that work plays in it. It's just that integrating those two effectively is now much harder than it ever was. I think that's right. That's right. And I think that that comes back to the question you asked at the beginning, which was like, what is the, what is the role of productivity right now? So what is it, what does it mean to have a productive life? And I think these are, these are the new elements of it. It's, it's making the life that you want, accomplishing what you want to accomplish, having a job that, that, that gets you further or accomplishing what you want to accomplish, getting rid of as much of the bullshit as possible, wasting as little time, you know, as you can and wasting as, as, as uh, wasting as few conversations as you can. You know, when you're talking to someone like that's an important and precious thing. And let's, let's not, let's not throw that away by having endless, you know, meetings where, Nothing is actually actually being discussed, or, or or nothing. Not much is happening, and everyone's kind of bored and waiting for it to be over. Like why why live a life where you're waiting for any part of it to be over? Um, that's I think what we used to do in kind of mm-hmm. previous in office productivity culture, and uh, it's it's worth it's worth rethinking all those things. Interesting. So that brings me, I guess, to my to my final question because you're somebody who used to live in the valley. Um, and you move from there and now, as you mentioned, you're in, you're in Bentonville, mm-hmm. Arkansas. So what led to, what led to that shift and, and has anything about that move to Arkansas or changed your outlook on life or your, your view on how distributed? Yeah. I mean, I run? think, um, it was an easy, like, um, I, we were basically just looking to, to, you know, flee San Francisco during COVID for, for a while. And, uh, it was very low stakes. Uh, you know, I was living mm-hmm. right in, in the mission district in, in San Francisco and it was got pretty unbearable, especially during lockdown, like there was nothing to do anyway. So we kind of thought, let's just go yeah. someplace where we can at least have a backyard and a tree to look at. And we weren't planning on staying for more than, you know, a couple of months. Uh, so it was very low stakes. We literally spent, you know, 40 minutes thinking about where to go. Like I spent more time, you know, deciding what pocket notebook I'm going to buy than, uh, than, than where we, than we were going to live. Uh, and so drove down to Arkansas, um, to Bentonville. Uh, and for the first couple of months, yeah, we were just like in lockup and, you know, lockdown, I guess. Uh, so it was, it was 
was fine. But then as things, I mean, kept thinking that we'd move out, mm-hmm. but like as things opened up, it just became really nice. And so I just kept extending it and extending it, extending it and like buying some land and building a house. And so it just kind of became this thing where, uh, turns out we're staying here because it's great. It's just a great place to be. Uh, Northwest Arkansas is mm-hmm. just, it's just cool. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of business here. There's a lot of work. The economy is great. There's like all sorts of things, but really like it's, I'm not here for any of that. I'm here because it's a great place to live. Um, and I'm lucky enough that, 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 that I have a job that, uh, I could do from anywhere. And so if I can do the job from anywhere, why not do it from a place that's mm-hmm. great to live? And then what I've learned, what I've realized is the, is, is, is how that loop gets closed which is it's not, I, it's not only that I have a job that I can mm. do from anywhere, so I might as well do it from a place that's great. I do my job better if I do it from a place that's great. It's, that's, that's how the loop gets closed. Mm. It's, that, it's that making a good quality of life improves my productivity, improves my quality of work. Because I'm, I'm in a better mood, because I can do more stuff, because I have fewer distractions, because I'm not wasting time. So I didn't realize that until, until coming here. I just thought, well, look, I can do the job from anywhere, so let's go someplace nice. What I didn't realize is the other half of that, which is, yeah, I can do the job from anywhere, but I could do it even better from a place that's nice. So uh, that's the big, that's the big uh, reveal for me. Phil, that's a great way to close it out. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Um, and our audience will love it. Really appreciate it. Thank you. The Way Too Busy podcast was presented and produced by me, Matt Neal, and was brought to you by Billion Minds. If you want to get in touch with us, tweet us at risingbillion or email us at waytoobusy at billionminds.com. Billion Minds, creating practical tools for our way too busy lives. If you're enjoying the Way Too Busy podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes so that others can find us as well. Thanks.